Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Thank you for joining us for episode 29, as Michael and I remember September 11, 2001. Eighteen years ago, 19 men hijacked four commercial planes in a coordinated attack on the United States. Two of those planes were flown into north and south towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. The third plane struck the U.S. Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia. The passengers on the fourth plane, United Flight 93, launched a counter-assault to regain control of the flight, which was crashed by the hijackers in a field outside Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The loss of life was staggering and the events of 911 had have, have had an impact, both great and small, on countless friends and family members, and continues to impact the lives of survivors, first responders, and those who witnessed the events of that day and the weeks and months that followed it. Tonight, we'll talk about the attacks and some of the individuals responsible for them. 
Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the architect of the plan to use planes as weapons against the United States. He oversaw operations and training of pilots and hijackers who were all chosen personally by Osama bin Laden. Al-Hamza Ahmad Suleiman al-Bahul, Osama bin Laden's personal assistant and al-Qaeda's propaganda minister, Bahul took loyalty oaths from Muhammad Atta and Zihad al-Jarrah and produced their martyrs' wills, which were propaganda tools. Zacharias Moussaoui was intended to pilot a fifth hijacked plane into the White House. His behavior and statements, as well as his inquiries regarding converting GPS units for aeronautical operation, raised suspicions at his flight school in Minnesota, and that led to his arrest on immigration violations in August of 2001. As always, we are a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347 347- Nine eight nine one one seven one. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. I, I tell you, this is going to be one of those shows where it's going to be fun, but it's going to be one of those shows where it's pretty difficult to go through. You know, uh, a lot of people still, you know, this is the time frame when a lot of families. Uh, still in that northeast area go through a lot of pain you know a lot of people were lost yes. on 9-11 and uh you know definitely it's one of those things even as an american you still feel it now what some 18 years later uh definitely you know it, it, it's one of those things that we remember each and every year but we're certainly glad yes. that we're not dealing with it any and longer. And I posted on the uh, show intro, people from all over the world and all over the United States died on that day. Um, we have, in Louisiana, we have five people who were killed, three at the Pentagon and two at the World Trade Center. And then there are three Arkansas citizens who were killed, one at the Pentagon, one at the World Trade Center, and one who was a a flight attendant on Flight 11, Sarah Lowe. Uh So, um, yeah, and people do feel it all over the world. It was more than 2,000, I think it's 2,400 people somewhere in that line, in that line um as of last year only about 60% of the recovered remains from the World Trade Center had been identified I don't I didn't look up a, a current statistic to see if that had changed but uh because at the World Trade Center, you had two buildings that essentially pulverized as they collapsed, and everything that they pul- everything in between was pulverized as well. Um, if you've ever seen the No Day Brothers documentary Nine One One, it was uh, aired on CBS on the. 10th anniversary, 
It's available from Amazon. It's available on Prime. It is an excellent, excellent documentary. I'm not sure if you've seen the one that I've seen, but uh, it was actually made by uh, CNN, and it was about two French uh, filmmakers who. Uh, no, that was that was that was Jules and Gideon Noday. Yes. Yes. And James yes. Hanlon. That was that that CNN didn't make that. They made that. Oh. They started out. They were following a probationary firefighter yep. getting out of the academy and beginning his career with the New York Fire Department. And they had been following him all summer, and they were actually, I think, getting around close to wrapping up when they were out on a routine call with Chief Joseph Pfeiffer and saw Flight 11 uh, crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center by Muhammad Atta. Uh-huh. Yes, ma'am. And so, yeah, that that was a, an excellent documentary. Um, if you haven't ever seen it before, I, I would recommend everybody watch it because these guys, literally, they just filmed events as they happened and one of the things that I've I've always appreciated in spite of the horror that they witnessed they did not film Jules did not film injured people as they were coming out of the elevators when they first got into the North Tower Um, Jules and Gideon did not film the bodies of those people who were trapped above the damage above the impact zone who chose instead of burning to death to uh, jump from the towers, which no one could blame them for. Um, They didn't film any of that. Which is something, you know, that takes a lot of, uh, you know, obviously they were there to do a job, but, you know, that's awesome that they didn't do that. You know, they they still made for such an amazing film to be honest it really mm-hmm. did uh yeah you know it's one of those things that you know you could feel the emotion even though these guys just got there with uh this unit that they were with you know they uh, you know i remember specifically the uh when the, he found his brother or when uh excuse me not when he found his brother i remember there being a lot of emotion when he found his brother but when the uh, yeah. firefighters thought was missing just walked in and the emotion you could yeah. see you know, that it, was, it, it literally takes you through an emotional roller coaster that was that day yeah. a lot of people that that was Tony Benetatos he was the probationary firefighter he had been left at the station to man the phones but then uh-huh. he went off with a retired chief and he came wandering back late in the afternoon. Um, another uh, poignant scene in there is uh, when the South Tower collapsed, the lobby of the North Tower, all the fire personnel that were there scrambled to you know, take cover. They didn't know what was happening. And there was a lot of debris in that lobby area or the area that they ended up in. 
And that was when wow. Father Michael Judge was killed. And he right. was the first official casualty or fatality. Yes, ma'am. And um, so that was that's a, a poignant scene to see the later on in, in the evening. You see firefighters who carried Father Michael to uh, the church. And laid him on the altar they were talking about having, you know, carried him out and that he was gone. And the thing that always got me and is getting me now, I'm getting teary-eyed, is that these hardened, trained firefighters were as dumbfounded about what was happening as everyone else was, but they still did their jobs and their priority was still saving as many people as they could. Um, when they're, when they were fleeing the South tower collapse, the North tower collapse later on, uh, chief Pfeiffer actually saved Jules Noday by jumping on him and covering him with the coat you know, his turnout coat when the debris was was falling in. I mean, can you imagine you've seen pictures of that, that debris cloud after the South Tower and after the North Tower? I mean, it was like a living thing out to kill people. Uh-huh. What it always looked like to me. So, um, I, will, I will be Wednesday, I will be watching... 102 minutes with a box of tissues as I try to do every year. It's one of, it it literally is just so heartbreaking uh, seeing some of the stuff that, you know, occurred during that situation that, uh, you know, literally that uh, documentary, it captures so well just the, just the, uh, the hopelessness, you know, feeling. Right. But there was a lot of hope. There was yeah, a lot of kindness. You know, I, you know, I injured. Know it's a, uh, I know it's a uh, cliche, but, you know, it's true. You don't want to be the uh, American you were on 9-11. You want to be the American you were on 9-12, you know. Uh, right. Everybody just kind of forgot about themselves and embraced the yeah. country as a whole. Yeah. And I think another thing that we we don't always think of, about as much, but in the World Trade Center, the loss of life could have been much greater, but they were able to evacuate most of the North Tower and the South Tower in a very short amount of time uh-huh. after the first plane hit. And I've heard some some comments and read some comments about how initially people in the South Tower were told to stay where they are, but having gone through fire drills in multiple high-rises over my career, um, that's actually standard procedure, and there's a good reason for it. 
Um, you usually try to evacuate a few floors at a time because you don't want everybody in the entire building all descending on the stairways, whether you have two or three or four. You don't want everybody trying to go down the stairways at one time. It's going to back things up, and it's going to impede the evacuation process. Right. Absolutely. So you would, in an actual fire, you would evacuate the people on the floor where the fire is and the people immediately threatened by the fire above it uh-huh. and below it. And then you would evacuate everybody else in the building. <clears throat> so um, that's, like I said, normal procedure. And once the uh, South Tower was struck, the South Tower was already in the evacuation process, and that process continued. True. So... Um, and at the time, the South Tower, there was no belief that the South Tower was in any danger because uh, nobody really knew what happened. They knew it was something big, but they didn't know that it was a coordinated planned attack. Right. And that more was coming. Um that's one of the interesting things reading about the the planning and the plotting. These planes were actually all supposed to uh, arrive and hit their targets at the exact same time. Uh-huh. But there was a lack of coordination, I guess, and there were – you know, one of the flights, I think it was 175, was delayed slightly, so it didn't take off from Logan when Flight 11 did. And then I think there was another delay at Dulles, so that plane was delayed. And um, and then Shanksville, the, the hijackers had to deal with passengers who were not going to go quietly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, so. there's one thing you can't account for when you're trying to uh, – there's a couple things you obviously can't account for when you're trying to uh, coordinate something that's supposed to happen at an exact time, and that's obviously the travel system in the United States as well as uh, as well as the will of the American people on that day. Yeah. So, um, all right, well, let's – we want to talk about the people involved, and there's a lot of information on just the – there were a lot of people involved, uh, mostly with al-Qaeda. However, we're going to concentrate on Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, al-Hamza Ahmad Suleiman al-Bahul, Ramzi bin, bin Al-Sheba, Mustafa Al-Hawasi, Ali Abdulaziz Ali, and Walid bin Atash, as well as Zacharias Massawi. Um, 
So we'll start with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He is from Kuwait. He was more or less born and raised in Kuwait. His father is a member of a tribe that is from the border of Pakistan and Iran. So he's, I guess, ethnically Pakistani. His mother's a Palestinian, though. Um, he was raised in Kuwait. In 1983, he enrolled in Chowan College in Murfreesboro, North Carolina, and then transferred after a semester to the North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University in Greensboro. He was from a religious family but was not particularly fanatical at that time while he was in the United States, although he had joined the Muslim Brotherhood at age 16. Uh-huh. Um, and then he, in 1986, in December, he earned a degree in mechanical engineering. After that, he traveled to Pakistan, uh, where he met an anti-Soviet freedom fighter uh, from Afghanistan named Abdul Rasul Sayaf. And Sayaf became his mentor, and that's more or less where his path to uh, international terrorism began. Uh, He trained and fought against the Soviets in Afghanistan, uh, and then he, I guess, did not like that kind of work, so he began... Organizing behind the scenes, uh, he ran an organization that helped um, aid young Afghan freedom fighters, they call them Mujahideen, uh, in Peshawar and Jalalabad, Pakistan. He fought in Bosnia and made financial donations to support the Muslim conflict there in 1992. Uh, and then he moved to Qatar, where he became a product, project manager for a the Ministry of Electricity and uh, Water. And it was that job that enabled him to uh, travel internationally and promote further terrorist activities under that cover. Uh, in February 26, 1993... His nephew, Ramsey Yusuf, bombed the World Trade Center, one of the towers. I don't remember whether it was the North or South Tower. And Yusuf's plan was that he would plant a car bomb in the garage. It would go off. The tower would topple into the other tower, and then those would topple into the streets of New York, and cause massive death and destruction. Uh-huh. It didn't work out that way. Um, Yusuf, apparently, in spite of his intelligence, and um, I think he was a chemist or engineer, um, he didn't use quite enough bang, and so he did damage, and people were killed, but it was not a high body count not even a you know severe damage situation the building was evacuated but it was 
it barely even moved during the whole thing. Um, right. It was then that I that Muhammad and Yusuf began planning the Bojinka plot or the Manila plot, and that was where they wanted to to hijack 12 U.S. commercial jumbo jets and explode them over the Pacific Ocean during a two-day span. They also Uh wanted to assassinate President Bill Clinton, Pope John Paul II, um, during trips to Manila, and they wanted to also plant bombs in U.S.-bound cargo carriers. Um, They... uh, basically had the Manila plot going, and then Yusuf had a fire in his apartment. He had a test run of a theater, a shopping mall, and he did bomb a Philippine air flight en route to Tokyo. Um, But he had a fire in his apartment. He fled the apartment, and that's when all his bomb-making materials were discovered. Uh, Muhammad, in 1996, fled Qatar to avoid capture by U.S. authorities. And uh, shortly thereafter, he met Osama bin Laden and proposed his plan to hijack airliners to use as weapons uh, against the United States. Osama liked the plan. He was, you know, he was fond of bombing stuff. And so uh, he, I guess, gave Muhammad the go-ahead to start putting it together. Uh, But at that time, uh, Muhammad didn't want to join al-Qaeda. He was trying to work with other groups, and he felt that al-Qaeda would would prevent that. Uh, In 97, Muhammad went to Karachi, Pakistan. And then in 1998 or, or late 98 or early 99, uh, bin Laden green-lighted the 911 operation. Muhammad did join al-Qaeda and moved to Kandahar to work with bin Laden in Afghanistan. So <clears throat> the planning begins. Um, the pilots were first chosen by bin Laden, and they were Khalid al-Midhar, Nawaz al-Hazmi, Tafiq bin Atash, and Abu Bara al-Yemeni. They were trained at a camp in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, Muhammad instructed them on Western culture and travel. He collected training and informational materials on uh, jumbo airliners. He purchased flight simulator software and movies depicting hijackings so that they could learn how to carry out their their uh, tasks. And he also rented safe houses in Karachi where they could stay. Um, he Additionally, most of these guys didn't speak English, so he taught them basic English words and phrases, how to read and a phone book, use the internet, interpret airline timetables, and to use code words, code words in communication, and rent apartments so that when they eventually went to the United States, they would not be fish out of water. 
Um, so uh, about that time, four additional operatives arrived in Afghanistan. They were all Western educated. They'd been living in Germany in Hamburg for several years. And they were Muhammad Atta, Ramzi bin al-Shibi, Marwan al-Shiha, and Ziad Jara. Um, They were also chosen by bin Laden to become pilots for this planned operation. Um, Muhammad met Atta and bin al-Shiba in Karachi, Pakistan in 2000. He also instructed them on security and living in the United States. Uh, He facilitated their travel and documentation, which Al-Qaeda had quite a false passport, cleaning passports, taking uh, visa stamps out and things like that. They had a, a very sophisticated operation going to enable their operatives to travel through the Middle East, Europe, and even to the United States without, you know, attracting attention. Um, He also provided money for the operatives to travel. So in May of 2000, Muhammad had two operatives in the United States, and they were living in California. However, neither of them spoke English and neither of them were doing very well in their pilot training. One of those, uh, Mindhar, actually failed pilot training, and he bailed out of the plot for a time and returned to his family. The Hamburg cell were en route to the U.S., so um, they at least were going to have they were going to have enough pilots. And then uh, Bin al-Sheba encountered trouble. He was one of the Hamburg guys. He had trouble trying to enter the United States. He's from Yemen. And apparently Yemenis at the time, because their economy was so poor, were overstaying visas and working in the United States. And so immigration was a little hesitant to, to let Yemen – Yemeni citizens into the country at that time. Uh-huh. So since he couldn't get into the United States, he became the person, the money go-between. So he would transfer money to the operatives living in the United States for them to rent apartments, take flying lessons, take English lessons, do, you know, rent airplanes to have practice runs and do whatever they needed to do. Um, Muhammad also met a guy by the name of Hani Hanjur, who showed up at one of the Al-Qaeda camps. He had previously trained as a pilot, so he was picked to join the operation. Uh, Muhammad instructed him in code training and whatever other, whatever other, uh, knowledge he would need to live in the United States. Um, Something that's interesting, a lot of people have speculated that the reason Saudis were chosen as the hijackers 
was to send some kind of message to the Saudi government or to uh, incite uh, enmity between the United States and Saudi Arabia Mm -hmm. or to make Saudi Arabia look bad because they were allies with the United States. However, as it turns out, Saudis made up 80% of the pool at the Al-Qaeda camps. Right. So that was the reason they chose Saudis. It's also It was also easier for the Saudi operatives to enter the United States because Mohammed had uh, agents in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iran who were all not putting visas in passports. For Saudi nationals, because if Saudi nationals return to Saudi Arabia with a a Pakistani or a, an Iranian or an Afghani visa, their passports would be seized, right, by the Saudi government. So, um, that was. You know that was it was a practical thing. It was not it was not a message to anyone or anything like that. It's just that the majority of the people coming into the camps uh, for training and who wanted to wage war on the United States or Israel or or you know fight for Muslim dominance were Saudis, right. Um, the men who were going to act as the hi- muscle hijackers, even though none of them was taller than five seven, um, they were also uh, picked by Osama bin Laden, and they filmed martyrdom videos, which basically are a propaganda tool to not only send a message about the terrorist act, but to ensure that al-Qaeda gets credit for the act. Um, So they were also sent to Saudi Arabia to obtain U.S. visas sometime in late 2000. And then... um, during that time, the pilots were all undergoing their training. Pardon me. And um, the muscle hijackers started arriving in the U.S. between April of 2001 and June 15th of 2001 after having been trained by Muhammad, instructed by Muhammad, and given $10,000 each for future expenses by Ben al Shaba. Um, in July of 2001, Minhar, who had bailed earlier, returned to the U.S. and rejoined the plot. He wasn't going to be a pilot. He and uh, his uh, prior partner in pilot training were just going to be muscle hijackers. The tickets for the hijackers were purchased between August 25th and September 5th, 2001, 
And again, they were sent money to purchase tickets. They purchased them through travel agencies. Um, they didn't all 19 live in one place. They all lived more or less near where they were going to be taking flight training or, and they went mm-hmm. to different flight schools around the United States. Yeah. So, uh, but they lived near where they were taking flight training. And then when eventually when they picked September 11th and they picked the airlines, they, they flew cross country multiple times and, I guess they picked American and United because the planes were bigger. The uh, security was easier for them to bypass. Uh, more cross-country flights from the locations where they were. Um, they're not around to tell us exactly why they picked. And they were left to do that. Mohammed Atta kind of ran that part of the operation. And he's not here to tell us how that happened. Um, and then the attacks uh, on on 9-11 were carried out. Um, in September of 2002, Bin Alshib was captured in Pakistan. In March of 2003, Muhammad and Hassawi were captured also in Pakistan. And in April, Benatash and uh, Ali were captured. Right. Also, I think in Pakistan. Pakistan kind of, after September 11th, Pakistan had kind of, a, um, I guess, a little bit of egg on their face. Because a lot of Al-Qaeda operation had been in Pakistan for years. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, you know, they had safe houses in Karachi, Jalalabad, uh, Peshawar. You know, they were all over Pakistan. But after 9-1-1, they cracked down, and the Pakistani uh, government took a zero-tolerance policy and really was key because every one of these guys were caught with Pakistani uh, official cooperation. Well, I mean, obviously at some point they laxed up because, what, it was 2011 when they uh, (laughs) captured bin Laden and... uh, Well, that was was different... Bin Laden, Bin Laden was the wily coyote. Mm-hmm. Or no, Bin Laden was a freaking roadrunner. Right. He went to Tora Bora. I mean, before nine one one, before September eleventh, weeks before, he had already gone to Tora Bora, and that was a Taliban controlled area. Mm-hmm. So anybody going in there looking for him was going to have to deal with his allies, the Taliban. Right. Um, so uh, he was he was smart, and then he lived – he really lived under the radar. Oh, yes, absolutely. During I mean, those 
nine and years. People stop thinking about him. He's kind of like uh, he was kind of like uh, freaking Michael Myers or any movie villain you can think of. He'd pop back up with another video. Right, but that's all you ever saw. Right. But he lived in areas he was in. I think when they when they uh, captured him, Zero Dark Thirty is a great movie. Um, he was in Jalalabad. He was living in on an estate with heavy security, and probably to a degree cooperation from local authorities. Right. I mean, and you're right. Makes whenever, sense. whenever he, I think whenever he had a, a whiff, or a thought that U.S. forces were on his trail, he had some other rock to go hide under. Right. And so he did, but. He, you know, you can you can run, but you can't hide forever. And it was, uh, I think it was intelligence analysts at the CIA that were able to actually figure out they had a high value target in this location, and it was Osama bin Laden. And they also had that from people that they questioned at uh, at something controversial is the fact that most of these guys, when they were captured, they were sent to Morocco, Egypt, and other sites not on U.S. soil where torture was used. Right. And so it took them years, I think, to break down a lot of these guys, the people who would know uh, where what Osama bin Laden's habits were, courier networks. I mean, they were trying to unravel all of Al-Qaeda, which was um, had a pretty good spycraft uh, system. going on right so um but like you know he 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 hid until may was it may 11th 2001 i believe so something like that and then a a seal team paid him knocked on his door and he you know he didn't survive that encounter So, but he would, he probably prefers that it was that way than to have been captured and, and questioned and tortured. So. Oh, I'm sure he would have preferred it that way. You know, part of me, the uh, vicious, evil, sadistic part of me wishes they would have got him alive so that they could have had a chance to uh, rough him up a little bit. Well... I don't know. I I don't 
the problem I have with obtaining that information under torture is that you're not going to get, you're not necessarily going to get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You're going to get as much as they have to tell you to make it stop. And you're still only going to get what they want to tell you. Right. Um, and it helped that they they really did, uh, aside from, you know, the higher-up people who knew where all the pieces and parts were, most of the guys like Ada and the other pilots, they didn't know who was who and what was what. Uh-huh. They had one person they contacted. Uh, they spoke in code, and that was it. Right. So um, that is uh, Muhammad, and then uh, Balul. Again, he was personal assistant to Bin Laden. He produced propaganda videos for Al Qaeda. Um, he. He knew about the September 11th planning. Uh, He knew the plan, what it was, and he uh, actually took oaths of loyalty to bin Laden from Muhammad Atta and Ziad Jara. Uh, With uh, bin Laden, he's one of the people that moved to Tora Bora, which is in the mountains. Uh, uh-huh. Prior to the 911 attacks in, I want to say August of uh, 2001, so they moved a couple three weeks before the attacks took place. Right. Um, he wanted to participate in the attacks himself, but uh, Bin Laden refused because he was the media man for Al Qaeda and he was just too important. Um, so it was early September. They fled to a remote region in, in Afghanistan. Uh, he provided the radio from which Osama bin Laden heard reports about the attacks. And he also researched the economic impact of the attacks and reported his findings to bin Laden. Um, sometime later, I, it doesn't He's never said why, but he decided uh, to flee to Pakistan a few weeks after the attacks. And he was captured there in 2001 in December and turned over to U.S. forces. Uh, He was sent to the several black sites, Morocco, I think they had Morocco, Egypt. And maybe Tunisia. Um, Mm -hmm. And then in 2002, he was transferred to Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. Right. Uh, Then we have uh, Ben Al-Sheba. He was the money guy. We've talked about him a little bit. Al-Hasawi, Abdul Aziz, and Ben Atash. Their roles are not quite as clear. They were lieutenants in Al-Qaeda. They worked closely with bin Laden. They may have provided, they more likely than not provided funds and resources. Uh, 
Al-Qaeda raised funds through fundraising. They had charitable organizations, corrupt ones who would give them money. They had uh, they would get money from legitimate organizations under different guises. Um, so, uh, and contrary to what people believe, Osama bin Laden was not funding Al-Qaeda with his personal fortune because the Saudis seized a lot of that when bin Laden's activities got more radical in the 90s. Right. And prior to that, his family was actually forced to sell his share in the inheritance from their father because the Saudis were not happy with his radical beliefs and statements and and activities. So, um, now, trials. Um, First, Zacharias Massawi. Um, Zacharias Massawi, if Bin Laden was the roadrunner, Zacharias Massawi was Wiley Coyote. Because he really could not do anything right. Um, when he was initially chosen by bin Laden to participate in the September 11th attacks and to be one of the pilots, he was sent to Malaysia to train as a pilot. He was being hosted by a Muslim group in Malaysia that was aligned with Al-Qaeda and he had problems with them. He also apparently tried to buy several pounds of explosives that were not part of his mission. And so he ended up leaving, having to leave Malaysia and return to Pakistan or Afghanistan. Then he came to the United States and in early 2001, uh, he went to a flight school in Nor- Norman, Oklahoma first, trained on small planes, and then later went to Egan, Minnesota to a flight academy there to learn how to fly jetliners. Um, it was while he was there that he was inquiring about converting GPS units to aeronautical use. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people at the flight school, and Musawi had a reputation from other times and other instances of running his mouth. And so he was probably also running his mouth talking about wanting to fly an airplane into the White House. And saying things like that, which are really going to, you know, raise eyebrows and hackle. Yeah, just a little. And so he was, he was reported by the flight academy, an instructor or an administrator or someone there, and he was arrested on August sixteenth, two thousand one, for overstaying his visa. He was a French citizen. He had been raised in the West. And um, more likely than not, 
that is one of the things that caused problems with the other Middle Eastern Asian members of Al-Qaeda. Right. Because Massawi was seen as overconfident. So he was no longer available. Uh, He was in jail uh, awaiting his immigration status being uh, determined. And uh, but when they when he was arrested, he was in possession of several knives that he bought looking for small blades that could get past airport security. He had flight manuals for Boeing 747s. He had a flight simulator program, fighting gloves, shin guards, information about GPS units, software reviewing pilot procedures on a 747, and a handheld aviation radio. Also, in during questioning, he lied to federal agents because he wanted the plot to go forward. He lied about his purpose of his flying lessons, and he lied about being a member of a terrorist organization. So um, he was charged with conspiracy to commit acts of terrorism transcending national boundaries, conspiracy to commit aircraft piracy, Conspiracy to destroy aircraft, conspiracy to use weapons of mass destruction, conspiracy to murder U.S. employees, conspiracy to destroy property of the United States, and there were 110 overt acts by Massawi and his co-conspirators in the U.S. and abroad, including the 911 attacks, which supported not only the conspiracy charges but a death eligibility for Massawi. Right. And that was in December of 2001. Uh, He also was one of the first to go to trial or to begin the trial process because he was arrested and held in the United States. Um, He was tried in the Eastern District of Virginia. Um, He initially, in 2002, entered a no plea. Uh, He basically refused to answer or enter a plea, so the judge entered a not guilty plea on his behalf. Um, he was subject to special administrative measures in the interest of national security, uh, and that is done to prevent passing of coded messages or communicating with other terrorists. Uh, he had unmonitored attorney, client, and consular communication, but all of his other communications, uh, mail calls, and visits were monitored. Uh, any mail that was approved was sent to his counsel, and he was notified whenever the government seized mail. Um, also, there was a lot of classified information involved in the investigation and charges, and so his attorneys were cleared to receive that information in discovery. But the uh, Musawi could not receive that information unless the court allowed him to or the government consented. Rather, the court found he needed to or the government consented to him being given the, the confidential information. Right. Uh, in 2002, his attorneys requested that the uh, 
special administrative measures be lifted. And Masawi sought to represent himself, pro se. One of the problems with that is, as we saw with uh, with uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, he wanted the attorney he wanted who wasn't going to enroll because he didn't want to be a paper tiger. Um, and he didn't feel the court should be able to keep him from having that attorney. Um, he refused to cooperate with counsel appointed for him. He refused to talk to counsel hired by his family. Um, he wanted it his way or the highway. And when you're in prison and facing trial for your life, that's really not the way to go. Um, so, uh, and and basically, he was allowed to represent himself pro se. The judge very repeatedly and patiently explained that if you're, quote, you're, you can't have advisor who's not going to enroll and who is not going to subject himself to the rules and regulations of this court. Um, so he left his counsel as standby counsel. Uh, he appointed other counsel because nobody was good enough for Masawi. In June of 2002, he was rearranged. And shortly after that, in July of 2002, he sought to enter a guilty plea. Uh, he admitted knowledge of the 911 attacks, but then when it came time to hold the hearing and for him to allocute and enter his plea, he was unwilling to admit facts that were sufficient to support a guilty plea on the charges. So uh -huh. the I, I personally believe the guilty plea was a was more or less a uh, a a ruse. He was trying to represent himself. He was trying to get the SAM restrictions lifted, and so he, you know, said, "I'll enter a guilty plea," and used that as a platform to try and get what he wanted from the court. Uh, the court didn't right. really fall for it, so um, he was representing himself. And he sought access to uh, three enemy combatant witnesses to be deposed. The trial court granted the request for the depositions of three of the enemy combatant witnesses. Because of the classified nature, we don't know who they are. Um, the government appealed that order but it was not a final order, so the first appeal was dismissed. Right. Uh, during that time, Musawi was filing numerous improper motions. Um, they were threatening the court, threatening the public. Uh, there was a list of them, and they were just strange. But they were more... They weren't a result of Masawi being not right, but just a uh -huh. result of his fanatic his fanaticism. Gotcha. Um, and so uh, the court warned him 
about not filing these motions because they weren't proper motions. They 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 were seeking stuff the court couldn't even grant. Um, and he continued filing motions, so he ended up getting his pro se status revoked. Um, the fourth, the judge also had ordered the depositions after the first appeal was dismissed. The government refused to comply, and so the court took vacated the death notification. So they couldn't seek death in the trial. Right. And he also, again, ordered, you know, reordered the depositions. Um, I think the first request was for one witness, and then there was a second request for three additional witnesses. Um, so that went to the Fourth Circuit again, and the Fourth Circuit uh, reversed the deposition order found that the substitutions that the government was offering for those depositions were not sufficient and remanded the case to the district court to craft substitutions that would protect both Massawi's interests as well as the government's. Uh, the Fourth Circuit also vacated the sanctions order and essentially reinstated the death notification. In September 13th of 2004, the Fourth Circuit amended its opinion um, because one of the judges didn't feel that the judge crafting substitutions from various classified statements was uh, proper procedurally. And so the Fourth Circuit instructed the parties to craft substitutions with the court, which is an unusual. You know, the, the parties in the court together craft jury instructions. Uh-huh. You know, um, sometimes they'll get together on where you're going to enter deposition testimony, and the parties in the court will get together to decide what parts of the depositions are admissible, what parts should not be admitted. So that's, you know, not unusual. And that was to use the substitutions at the trial because there were some exculpatory statements given by like Muhammad Muhammad said Masawi wasn't going to be a fifth hijacker on 9-11 he was going to be a hijacker for a second wave of attacks on the west coast uh-huh. uh, but other witnesses and Musawi both said that he was going to be a fifth hijacker and he was going to fulfill his dream of flying a plane into the White House Right. So, um, in March 21st, on March 21st, 2005, the U.S. Supreme Court denied Musawi's writ for review of the Fourth Circuit decision. And on March 29th, 2005, Musawi informed the court that he wanted to enter a guilty plea to all counts. Uh, by this time, he was being represented by counsel. He was no longer pro se. Uh, he had found an attorney who was polite to him, a guy by the name of Yamamoto. And he was uh, more cooperative with Yamamoto. So Yamamoto was able to look after his interests. Right. Uh, after he entered 
after he entered his guilty plea and um, a private, basically there was a private hearing between the court, Yamamoto and Musawi regarding his intent to plead guilty. Uh, then there was a public hearing under Rule 11, Federal, Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 11, um, where a statement of facts was entered, basically outlining the facts that supported the charges. And these are acts that Musawi is admitting that he did. Um, so, uh, which comes in a little bit later. Then they went to the sentencing phase, at which time Musawi testified. Mm-hmm. And during his testimony, he confirmed his participation in the nine in the September 11th conspiracy. Uh, he confirmed that he was going to fly a fifth plane into the White House. He said that was his dream, and he admitted to lying when he was questioned after his arrest in August because he wanted the plot to succeed. Right. And um, some of the some of the classified substitutions uh, were entered, and a lot of Musawi's testimony was corroborated by. Statements from Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and others, although there were some conflicts, such as the, you know, whether he was going to be a second wave hijacker or September 11th hijacker. Um, mm-hmm. After his, he was sentenced. The jury did find him to be death eligible, but after the phase two sentencing, they elected not to sentence him to death. They found. Mitigating circumstances outweighed the aggravating circumstances that they had found in phase one. Right. And so they um, they sentenced him. They agreed not to sentence him to death. Also, he had stipulated that he would take a life sentence without parole. His attorneys argued that a life sentence would, without parole was a more – a better punishment if you really wanted revenge on this guy because if you sent him to death and he's executed, he's a martyr. Right. So uh, he he was sentenced to life in prison, six counts, no parole, no, no eligibility for release. Um, the first life sentence, the count on count one, was going to be served consecutively with the life sentences on the other five. And we've talked about that. What that means basically is once he finishes under the federal guidelines, how, whatever term of years he's got to do on the first sentence to theoretically be eligible for release, once he serves those number of years, he's got to start serving the years on the other five life sentences. Okay. And it's only after he serves all of that time that he theoretically could be eligible for release. Right. Um, So that is, 
uh, that is his sentence. And he did file an appeal. And one of the things uh, he uh, among the issues um, he complained about uh, pre-plea rulings of the court that were uh, in a, incorrect in error. He uh, claimed he did not knowingly enter his plea. Uh, because classified information had been withheld from him. He argued that his plea was not properly counseled by the court because the classified information could not be discussed with him and the information was exculpatory. Uh, He argued that his plea should not have been taken without further competency evaluations and that the plea colloquy with the court did not comply with uh, FRCRP Rule 11. The uh-huh. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal, uh, basically, this is an, an interesting opinion to read, because they basically smacked Masawi down on every single point. Um, they, first of all, the first thing is pre-pre-rulings are not cognizable on appeal when you enter a guilty plea. Because in entering your guilty plea, you waive any complaints about events that occur prior to the plea. The only exception is if there are legitimate jurisdictional flaws in either the court, the government's ability to bring the indictment, the indictment, or or something of that nature. Um, Non-jurisdictional grounds such as evidentiary rulings that are incorrect or uh, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment rights, those are all, all waived. And they also found that none of the pre-plea rulings created structural error in the plea. Um, One of the reasons for that is because even though the confidential or the classified information had been withheld from him, he his attorneys had it and he knew the nature of a lot of that information he knew a lot of it was exculpatory that's why he picked those witnesses uh-huh. to, for the depositions so um they kind of smacked him down on that and um they uh, also found that it wasn't unknowing, un- uncounseled, that um, once he pled guilty, the issue of factual guilt was removed from the case. Uh-huh. And that it was kind of funny because he is basically contradicting his sworn testimony where he said, I'm guilty. This is what I did. Right. Um, so they they found he you know he had advice of counsel and and part of the problem if he had a problem with his counsel it was because of his uncooperative behavior and nothing else. Um, they also found that his competency had been settled prior to his being uh, allowed to represent himself pro se because his attorneys requested that be done. When a uh, 
a doctor was appointed by the court. Masawi didn't want to talk to him. The court hauled Masawi in and said, I've got to do this if you want to represent yourself. If you won't talk to this doctor, then I have no choice but to send you to Butner, North Carolina, where they're going to evaluate your competency. Right. And, of course, once the judge gave him that warning, he cooperated with the doctor appointed by the court, and the doctor was able to issue a report. And so Musawi was found competent for C pro se. Um, the Fourth Circuit also found that there was no evidence of a lack of confidence at the time of his uh, July plea or at the time of the subsequent plea in 2005. Mm-hmm. So um, the court also found there was no flaw in the uh, Rule 11 proceedings. The court, um, you know, the court explained everything and and went above and beyond to uh, deal with Masawi, who was not a um, you know reasonable person all the time because of his fanaticism, not because of any mental issue. All right. Yes, ma'am. We are back. <laughs> okay. All right. Those of you kind of wondering, we didn't have technical issues, although we are want to have them. Um, that was to symbolize the collapse of the South Towers, which occurred an hour and 13 minutes after the first plane struck the North Tower in at the World Trade Center in New York City. So um, that's how fast it happened. Yeah, One minute, people were evacuating. The firefighters were, were, you know, going up in the North Tower to try and help people. Other firefighters weren't going into the, the South Tower. And then all of a sudden, it just came down. Um, some of the stuff I read, I think it took about 26 seconds for the tower to collapse completely. Right. I mean, it's crazy how much can change in about a half a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, all right, so that's that's Masawi. He uh, Fourth Circuit affirmed his conviction, affirmed his sentences, and I did not find any evidence that he's filed any federal habeas corpus writs um, or anything. He was tried in civilian court in the Eastern District of Virginia. One jurisdictional argument he did raise was that uh, Virginia was not the proper uh, jurisdiction uh, 
But the court found that when you have a conspiracy, wherever an act takes place conveys jurisdiction. So jurisdiction would have been proper in New York City. It would have been proper in Oklahoma. It would have been proper in Minnesota. And it was proper in Virginia because of the Pentagon. Right. So... Um, so he is in he's serving his life his uh one life sentence now and when he's done with that one he'll start the other five. Okay. And uh we shall hopefully never see him again. And then there's Munir El Motasadik. He was actually tried in Germany. Uh, he was a roommate of Muhammad Atta, and he was part of the Hamburg cell of Al-Qaeda. He knew about the conspiracy. He knew you know, what Atta was doing. He paid Atta's bills with the power of attorney. He kept the apartment. He paid the rent. Uh, he did all those things to more or less cover for Atta so that people would think he was still in Hamburg and not that he was in the United States taking flying lessons or living in the United States and planning to kill thousands of people with an airplane. Um, he has been, he's appealed and his appeals were denied and then he was sentenced in Germany and he's in prison in Germany. I didn't have much but Wikipedia on him. So, um, I don't have access to German case documents, and even if I did, I couldn't read them. (laughs) But I found him on Wikipedia and just kind of sketched out that. And then Abalul was tried um, after his capture in a military commission trial, and the D.C. Circuit Court He was convicted on multiple conspiracies, Um, but in 2014, the D.C. Circuit Court reversed, I believe, all but one of the conspiracy counts. And then in 2016, uh, I guess on a rehearing, they did uphold one conspiracy count. I don't know exactly what his sentence is because uh, the opinion did not – didn't really give any background about the trial or the evidence. Um, Right. And it was – there was a concurring opinion authored by now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, which I found interesting. Really? Uh Uh-huh. The two Balul opinions are – One is like 84 pages, and the other one is 70-some-odd pages. Uh, It was a divided court because I believe it was an en banc court for the military commission because of the military commission aspect rather than a panel. Usually in the circuit, the, the federal appeal circuit, they have a panel of three judges that looks at a case. And they'll Uh look at the case every time it comes before the court. 
um, which I saw in another case that I I found, um, but I didn't I, I didn't talk about that guy because he wasn't really involved in the planning. He was a more peripheral uh, with the coal and I think the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. So I put him aside. Um, right. Yeah, that was interesting. But he he was convicted on one count of conspiracy, and there was a there was a lot of controversy. There there is and was a lot of controversy about the military commission trials. Um, I believe there was even a, a one case I found in which the a statute of limitations defense was made and the charges were reversed. The conviction was reversed. Really? Yeah. And that's something too that people a, a lot of lay people don't don't understand. They think if uh Ali Hamza gets his conviction reversed on statute of limitations then somebody else, you know, Balul should get his reversed too. But it depends. If Hamza's activities were back in nineteen ninety three 1996-1999 and he didn't have any involvement in the plot in 2000-2001 and really didn't have any direct involvement in September 11th then yes, yeah, statute of limitations is going to because it's it's what he did when he did it It's kind of crazy to me statute of limitations even applies in this situation that's one thing I never expected you to bring up <laughs> so, well, there was another another case where the conviction was for a crime that was not recognized under the law at in 2001. And that may have been it wasn't statute of limitations. It was that the charges lodged against this person uh, – I can't remember what it was – were not they, – they, it wasn't a crime. It's since become a crime, and it's also going to depend again on, on what they charge him with. What they charged Masawi with, all those things were recognized conspiracies. You know, using airliners, pirate, airline piracy, all that, that's all recognized. It's all, you know, prohibited. Um, I think it was actually whoever drafted the indictment against this one person. It was just an inartfully done indictment, um, which for Muhammad and the other men that I talked about earlier, um, whose names are difficult to pronounce. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, you're Ben Al Shaba, Al Halasawi, uh, Abdul Aziz Ali, and Walid Benatash 
for Muhammad and these guys because they're the ones that are going to be tried in 2021. Um, the indictment is a hundred and something pages. Good God! And each page has a single <laughs> charge. So, um, I, I think they learned from that. That was probably one of the first. And again, that particular one may have been the first World Trade Center, not September 11th, because I didn't even print it. Um, right. So, whoever drafted the indictment against that one just didn't do a good enough job. I can see that. And definitely. so he 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 used terminology and and crafted a charge that was not was not going to stand up on appeal. Um, like I said, I don't remember who it was or or what the particular. And they also he this is one of the people who was really charged with only one conspiracy type of offense. I mean, and he was convicted. Well, he was convicted, and because it was one charge, he was sentenced to a short term in prison anyway. He got credit for time served, and he served time in prison. And he wasn't released from prison because of the appeal. It's just that the D.C. Circuit ended up basically – vacating the conviction. Now, whether he's turned around and sued the U.S. government for wrongful conviction, I don't know. Um, and and I don't want to know. <laughs> because right. he, was, he was involved when I read, another thing I'd recommend for you is the 911 Commission report. Uh, mm-hmm. When you go to the website, it's broken up into chapters, mm-hmm. and so the chapters are thirty, forty pages long. They're not that that bad, but reading uh, the information that was gathered by the nine one one commission, and then there are notes at the end of the chapter, and there are statements from the uh, that kind of summarize each chapter. I, I would highly recommend reading that to see how intricate Al Qaeda operations were. Oh, I mean, and you know, we talked about this before we came on the air, but I mean, that's something that you know I picked up on on that uh, Hulu show I was telling you about, the Looming Tower. Is you know yeah. these bastards aren't stupid, you know. They're some of the smartest people you can imagine, and the way they're doing things, and it's just it's crazy. Yeah, and um, that's another thing. Yeah, uh, you know, Mah- uh, Sheikh, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed has a mechanical engineering degree. Ramsey Youssef had some kind of engineering degree, and the thing that kind of incenses me about these some of these men is they came to the United States 
and got a good education. And then they turn around and want to attack the United States. You didn't you didn't go to university in Afghanistan. You didn't go in Iran. You didn't go in Saudi Arabia. The you know, the United Arab Emirates. You came to the United States for that college degree. What the hell is wrong with you? Very true. Very true. So um, and most of them, yeah, most of them were. They had, uh, you know, they had engineering degrees. They had, uh, you know, chemists, biologists. So, but, uh, so Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, he was captured. And after a period of time uh, in some black ops sites, uh as guest of the CIA, he was transferred to Guantanamo Bay. Uh, it's been a torturous process to bring him to trial because he was transferred to Guantanamo sometime in about 2006. Uh, but there were issues with the first Military Commissions Act that was passed by Congress. Apparently, during the Obama administration, there was some pushback from Congress regarding the use of military commissions to try these people. And uh, I'm sure that the current Congress is going to be pushing back between now and 2021, prior to the trials of these men beginning. Um, and uh, so there was there was some kind of indictment, but then there was a problem with the Military Commission Act. The U.S. Supreme Court got involved. That's a very, very, very long decision. It would be a show in and of itself. Um, needless to say, in 2009, the Military Commissions Act was amended or a new Military Commissions Act was passed by Congress. And so the current charges against Muhammad and his co-defendants are under that new Military Commission Act. I think there was legitimate concern because under the Military Commissions Act for the enemy combatant terrorist defendants, there was no uh-huh. process right, no right to counsel, no constitutional protections for these military combatant terrorist types. Um, but that was that was changed in the two thousand nine act. And so now they're they're entitled to counsel. In fact, I think uh Mohammed's attorney was appointed. He was an army JAG officer and he actually ended up leaving the army so that he could continue representing Mohammed because he was having problems with the army over his representation. Um, because of the torture, that's going to provide another level of issue to the trials because a lot of the inculpatory statements that these men gave were given under torture. So there's a question as to whether or not they'll even be admissible. Um, At one point, 
the uh, military commission threw out two of the charges, and that may have been where the statute of limitations came in. But the um, the court that reviews military uh, commission. It's not uh, – I don't think it's the D.C. Circuit. I think it's a court, a separate military appellate court. Um, they reinstated those charges because they found that under the you know, the laws of war in the United States, there is no statute of limitations. And that's been you – know, that's been applied during the Civil War, during – after World War II, during World War II. Um, so the court um, the court recently on August 30th set the trial date for January 11th, 2021. So that is I, that, you know, that's pretty much – that's what we know now. Right. And, I mean, you know, I, and I realize, you know, we're getting about 30 minutes left in the show. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was something you said uh, that kind of struck me as – a little counterintuitive to what I saw in the uh, in the TV show. Now, okay, you, Hollywood and what have you, but uh, and I haven't read the book yet, so I don't know how close the TV show is to the legitimate things that uh, the uh, FBI agent Mr. Sufran uh, claims. But from what I understand on the TV show. Benatosh was like the head money guy. He, he, no, that's Benal Sheba. Uh huh. I believe. Um, okay. it, well, it could be Benatosh. The names, uh, I, I have, I have a, a Yemeni. Uh, clerk at a convenience store that I go to, and um, I wish I'd taken these names and asked him how to say them, but I don't know if I want him to know that I'm researching September 11th because I don't want him to think, you know. Um, But, uh, yeah, he was the money guy, but he wasn't – he didn't have money. He took – he got money from someone, and he distributed it, yes. Right, he right, was the one right. to distribute so it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, he. Right, but yeah, basically, he was the head funneler, I guess, funneling the mm-hmm. money back to yeah. Pakistan, I believe. Is it Pakistan or Afghanistan? One or the other. Well, now he was the one that, like, when Musawi was going to go to Minnesota, he's the one who sent oh. Musawi the money for his tuition to the Flight Academy in Minnesota. Okay, okay. And living expenses for Minnesota. 
Now, it's been a minute since I've watched the show, but I believe No, I I think I know time. I I think I know what you're thinking of. Prior to September 11th on the mm-hmm. 9th or the 10th, uh Muhammad Ada, they took all the money that they had left. It was $26,000 and they mm-hmm. sent it back to Al-Qaeda. Yes. Okay. Cuz they didn't use it. They didn't need it. They knew they couldn't take it with them. And so they sent it back right. to now, Al-Qaeda. Yes. I could be wrong, but wasn't Ben Atosh, didn't uh, Sufran kind of, uh, and I'm a, I know you don't know who Sufran is, but didn't they kind of uh, link him to the coal as well? Wasn't he part of the link between Al-Qaeda and the coal? Uh he may have been. I did not. I didn't find that in the 911 commission report. Mm-hmm. But if he was the money guy for this operation, he was probably the money guy for the coal. Right. And right. for the prior attempt on the Sullivans, the USS Sullivan. Right. Which I bet you don't know how that got its name. No. How did that get its name? There were a group of brothers during World War II named Sullivan. Um, I think there were four or five of them. They all joined the Navy after Pearl Harbor. They were all on the same ship. And when it was torpedoed by a Japanese submarine, they all died when it sank. And that is why now siblings are not stationed together. Oh, as really? a general rule, I mean, in any in any armed force, yeah, because the, these, I think there were five brothers. There's a movie made in the 1940s about them, right? And um, they yeah they all they all died when the ship sank. Hmm. Okay. And so. Well, uh, I so mean, they named a, they named a vessel for the Sullivans. That's interesting. Lincoln, the group that caused the biggest uh, the biggest terrorist attack since Pearl Harbor, uh, they attacked a ship named after people who joined the military because of Pearl Harbor, or attempted to attack. They weren't successful. Okay. So. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, I I said it before, World Trade Center could have been so much worse, and what they wanted was a lot worse. And so, you know, 2,900 people is nothing compared to what it could have been. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the the thing that they, they should have looked at history when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, Admiral Yamamoto, I have heard, said, I fear we have awakened a sleeping dragon. Well, when you look and, at it, I mean, you can, no matter your political affiliation or anything, when you look at it, Honestly, the reaction to that day 
I, I mean, honestly, Bin Laden probably I, – I hate to give the man any credit, but he probably knew that they weren't going to win this battle. So, I mean, honestly, their thought process behind it probably doesn't make much sense. But then again, they're crazy bastards anyway. Right. No, they're fanatical. Right. It's not even crazy. They were very calculating. Um, you know, like I said, the, the when the when the muscle hijackers were chosen, uh, you know, Muhammad sent them back to Saudi Arabia or their home countries to get U.S. visas. Right. They had people in Iran, Pakistan. Afghanistan, who wouldn't put visas in Saudi passports. Right. Because they knew Saudi passports would be confiscated if there were, you know, these these visas from these countries. Um, well, and I mean... You know, they were very, very calculating and very, uh, you know, and it, and it does, it sounded fanciful. I read it in a novel... Um, I read a similar storyline in a novel about a year before September 11th, and I thought, that's crazy. And then that morning, it happened. Well, and I mean, you look at it. Of course we thought it was crazy. We learned so many lessons from, you know, Pearl Harbor, and we had really we were coming out of the Clinton administration where really nothing happened and then all of a sudden you know and it was something that had been planned for a while so I mean alright they were planning for about two years yeah yeah just one of those things that uh, you know you wish you could you wish some people had a little bit more respect for human life, but obviously they don't. Right. And that is, and and just the evil of it, you 